and welcome to the very 118th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Today, it is me, Matt Lee, is joined by Quentin Smith and Tom Brewster. Hello. Hello. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, have we got some games that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be kicking it off with Renature, the new game from Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer, who brought to you games such as Mexico. Hmm, we've got another game of putting chunky things on a map in a way that's broadly collaborative, but also mean. We're going to be talking about Pictures, a game that won the Spiel de Jahr, a uh, prize that is a bit contentious, and Tom's played that game. And does Tom, is, what's it like? One word? Good. Good. We're going to be going on a search for the search for Planet X, a game from Renegade, which is apparently like doing homework, but also tremendously exciting. Is that accurate, Quinns? Yes. And finally, got a brief mention from some of our videos. We got Decrypto went online. Ooh, it's a classic. Anomia. Ooh, another game. Two games a bit old, but they're classics. Check out the videos. And finally, Queens is going to promise us that he's going to talk about Eclipse, Second Dawn for the Galaxy for just a minute, and is then going to talk about it for probably about 10 minutes. And that's all the I podcast. I don't think that's going to happen. I think... I think that's character assassination. I have control over how long I talk about <laughs> things, Matt. That's ridiculous. I don't know. I just, I just think that's what's going to happen. And now, without further ado, if music be the food of pod, let's cast. So a game that me and Tom played on the internet of all places just the other day on a service called Tabletopia, it's called Renature, or Renature, as we insisted on calling it repeatedly (laughs) in a frankly, probably slightly racist manner. Anyway, it is a glorious creation of dominoes and domination featuring animals that surround little patches of ground that have flowers and trees placed on them that eventually pop off awarding points to the person in control of that area now this is a game by michael kiesling and wolfgang kramer who you might know for azul and al grande uh, but this isn't the first time they've worked together they've created the mask trilogy of tikal mexico and cusco uh, which are all as Quinn's points out in this document I'm reading from, they're all lovely, lovely games. <laughs> Mexico is an absolute delight. So I've got a lot of time for these two when it comes to games where you place blocky things on maps in ways that are going to irritate other players, which is what I remember was the game in Mexico. Now, this has an immediately striking theme called Renature. You have these dominoes that you're drawing up from and you're holding three of them in your hand at any time. Each domino, as you might expect with dominoes, has a little image on either side of it. And they're all different types of animals. Some birds, some badgers, some bloody owls. And I kept drawing double owls, which was a nightmare because there was nowhere for owls to connect to. And really, you are just taking it in turns to play a domino-style game where you have this grid that you can put them out onto, but the placement rules are as you would expect from dominoes. You cannot put an owl end up against a badger end. That is illegal, (laughs) as we learned in the story of Adam and Eve. The trickiness is you're not freeform with this. There is a specific grid that you can follow. And as you play, you're going to be slowly surrounding these enclosures. And every time you put down a domino on the board, in one of the enclosed spaces adjacent to it, Uh, which is kind of a patch of dirt, you may place one of your selection of delightful fauna. Not fauna, flora. That's the other one. (laughs) Fauna and flora. So 
you can place like a little bit of grass or you can place like a shrubbery or shrub or you can place like a small tree or you can place a massive tree and there's no cost for placing these things it's just that you have a very limited amount of all of these things even you've got a couple of massive trees you've got loads of grass but the scoring values of these things obviously scale up as you go along and the trick is that the moment at which that soil enclosure is fully surrounded by dominoes or as surrounded as it is possible for it to be you'll immediately score that and the person who has the largest score of trees and shrubberies and grass etc in that area is going to get the big prize bonus with whoever's second getting a lesser bonus but a big thing here is if no one else is there you get the big bonus and the little bonus which means you have this strange game of creeping dominoes out across the board whilst trying to take control of areas but obviously you're not you're never connecting to just your dominoes you're connecting to anyone's dominoes so it becomes the game it reminded me most of actually was Tigris and Euphrates, of it being more than anything a game of of having eyes everywhere and <laughs> spotting the place you should be putting a thing down or the thing you should be blocking next. And then Tom, why don't you talk about the the neutral rule, which was the the killer? <laughs> the neutral rule is like the most is the little there are just enough little twists in this game that make it like exactly as complicated as it needs to be. And the neutral is the the kind of bitey core. Um, because in one of those enclosed territories, you're adding up the values of the, the flora in it. So, you know, I've got three shrubs, they're all worth one. So I've got three points and you've got a tree worth three. So that's, you know, we've each got three points. If anything is tied in those areas, they cancel out, which means that if you both have three, no one gets any points. But that's wrinkled by the fact that you also have these neutral pieces. And the neutral pieces, they aren't yours, but they do count against someone else's pieces so you can get full-on petty where matt you were building up like a nice little tapestry of flora of little shrubs all worth one point each and i'd be like yeah but what about this neutral oak that's just gonna whap right into that space and just completely disrupt all of your plans and there was this really pivotal moment in our game where each of us had three points worth of uh, flora in an area and then well, sorry, you had three points of flora and area, and then I put a neutral three in and then snuck in one of my own. So the threes cancel out, and that one scores me all the points in the area, which feels unbelievably jammy. Oh, this um, sounds horrible. <laughs> it's lightly horrible. Um, but not it's not so mean and bitey that it would I would say that I wouldn't recommend it to people that don't like mean and bitey games, because you do have enough control over the puzzle. Um, with these cloud tokens that you get, um, which are these kind of limited but very powerful actions that you can take by spending these cloud tokens, that you have just enough control that you can see a mean play coming from a little while away, um, which I thought was quite smart. It's a really satisfying kind of puzzle that when someone does something bitey, it's not like, oh, I can't believe you've betrayed me. Like, they're going to betray you because, like, <laughs> you know, you're in, like, sort of direct competition and you can you could have seen that play coming from a mile away. I think the crucial thing is that the the intention and drive behind people doing this comes not through people being um, purposefully irritating. I think if it was a thing where like you had to somehow spend some sort of thing in order to put down a neutral thing on block a space, that might feel mean. 
But the reality of it is you've got this whole board in front of you of things that you have to try and place on the board. And at the end of the game, you lose points for everything on your board, which you haven't put onto the board. And everybody starts with a whole bunch of neutral things. So for everything, you get two of the really biggest trees and one of the biggest trees is a neutral one. So rather than you putting these things down being like, ha ha ha, I'm going to block this person. It's more of you going, well, you know, I don't think I'm going to win this area. And I have to, I want to put something down. So I guess I'll put a neutral one down. And because of that, because there's no additional cost or there's no, because you have to get rid of everything or try to, it, it's not that you ever feel like you're doing it to be mean. You're just doing it because it makes sense. But it's an interesting choice that, especially whenever you are branching out into new areas, because at the start of the game, um, it felt like, we had a little bit more control over things. You've obviously got some of these cloud points you can spend to do a bunch of magical bonus things, which get you out of a a pickle, effectively. But as the game went on, you're looking around the board thinking, oh, at one point I just had a double owl and double badger. And I was like, (laughs) what the hell am I going to do with these? There were no owl or badger ends anywhere to be seen. And so they were just useless to me. And so then you're just desperately looking for anything you can do. And as the board sprawls out, you find yourself going, well, I guess I'll go here. And then I guess the only place I can place um, some flora onto will be this new section that I haven't got into. And then you look at it and you're like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of invested trying to fill up this area with my trees. Do I actually even want to try and win this one? And so the decision of whether or not you're going to just drop some neutral stuff in there and hope it gets in the way of your partner, not your partner, your, your enemy, um, <laughs> your enemy of nature, or whether or not you want to go, okay, and invest some of your own trees. It's very non-naturey, actually. Um, but that, that's a really interesting mechanic, I think, especially because as the game went on, we quite quickly realized you just run out of trees. I, I placed all of mine quite early, and then <laughs> yeah. I just had a bunch of neutral stuff. And controlling the flow of that, of when you're going to put down neutral and when you're going to put down your own, is a really interesting part of the puzzle. It was, it was a fascinating thing. We just played it two-player, I don't know what it would be like with with a four. I feel like with three, it might be great. With yeah. four, I wonder if it might just be a bit like, well, there's no point in <laughs> making plans because... Yeah, in the fact that in a four-player game, you know, like some of the territories are only four spaces big. So it's like you're going to have a situation where... Or, or like they're very small little territory spaces. So Ooh. everyone is going to have something and they're all going to be jostling, jostling for that. Does, does the board get... Does the board get better or do you flip it if you play it with four players? You know what? We don't know. The The demo of it that's on Tabletopia, because it's an unreleased game, is just two player. There's no option to play more than two players as far as I can tell. So it may well be there's an alternate board. Um, it may well be there's alternate rules. We don't actually know. So that's, that's not a fair comment. So me saying it might not work that well before. I mean, that's a fairly standard thing. I think whenever you've got a game which is about planning ahead and taking one go and then, you know, when you've got three more turns before you get to come back again, you might just constantly be like, okay, well, I guess that's my plan in <laughs> in the bin. Um, but I don't know. It could just work in different ways. The thing I... I mean, that... Yep. Oh, no, Matt, please. The, the final thing I was going to say is, like, the, the fascinating thing we started to grok as we played it a bit was the fact that you could only place um, shrubs or grass or trees on spaces that were adjacent to the domino you were placing and as we start to realize this it meant that as you were kind of because you're going down these thin trackways in which everywhere you're moving has um kind of land to plant trees on on either side all the time with these little pathways 
you're always having to make a choice about whether or not you're going to put it onto the left or to the right or ahead of you or whatever or behind you. And because of that, we found that actually you have these massive areas that are worth loads of points and you think, oh, well, that's going to end up absolutely chocker with plants. But it doesn't because it means people end up creeping around it until you realize that actually this space might have eight empty spaces, but there are only actually three spaces now which can even potentially have trees put onto them. And that is a real game changer, especially when you kind of had that as a two-player game, it definitely had that Tigris and Euphrates style feeling of going, well, listen, if I put this here <laughs> and then I put a shrub here, then they can put one in the next space, but then I will be free to put the final domino there and, and making sure you've got like the right dominoes in hand, knowing that either scenario, they could put one there or they could put one there. And either way, I have a correct domino in hand to seal off that area before they can do anything. Um and it kind of take, takes away some of the, the nasty bitiness you get in, in Tigris in the fact that you have these these bonus cloud points that you can unlock more of during the game um, that can basically do a bunch of things. Like you can change the wild animal, which is like at any point one of the animals can count as anything, uh, which is a, game that, a thing that really reminded me of the mechanic in uh, Azul Summer Pavilion, effectively, of having something of being like, this round, this is special, mm. except in this there are no rounds. It's just an endless trudge of nature. <laughs> it's funny uh, hearing you two talk about it. Uh, we mentioned that the last design that these thing, these two designers came together on, well, not the last one, but they're most famous for the what's called the Mask Trilogy, three games, Tikal, Mexico, and Cusco. But now they've worked again on Renature. I've realized what all of these games have in common when these two designers work together is encouraging players to work together to build something. You know, the theme in Renature is all the players are going to be bringing life back to this sort of like polluted bit of land. It's all of these games are players having fun building this beautiful grand board together while also trying to take control of it and be like, but this this bit's mine. We're all building this together, but I want this hill or whatever. And then that being a fundamentally ridiculous thing when in the game there is no real ownership. I think it's like, safe to say, Tom, do you agree that like we kept kind of forgetting that we didn't own bits of the board? <laughs> yeah you're you're busy kind of slowly trickling down one side of it like laying your dominoes and then you would just be like well i'm gonna go there like, well, but but uh, i was busy doing something <laughs> and that was really exemplified by like later on when right on the one of the last rounds of the game i changed the wild suit to turtle and i put down a double turtle with the potential that i was going to then continue it later and then matt had been sitting on this stupid double badger and double owl was like well now turtles are wild i can just put that and i was like oh Oh yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> and it's just such a lovely when that sort of what you're viewing as your space is just always shared for the entirety of the game and that like the areas that you're staking control of you're like yeah this is mine just becomes someone else's almost like instantly is just it's just lovely. Someone in chat um pointed out while we were playing that the game is uh, simply complex which I just think is such a perfect turn of phrase where when you're reading the rules and then when you're playing it you're slowly these the implications of these rules reveal themselves to kind of greater and greater effect and the puzzle just deepens as you play it which is like the perfect feeling for something like this um it's just so direct and smart and yeah I, i'm very much in love with this game i think it's absolutely fantastic um i'm gonna be seeking out a copy as soon as i can <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty cool and there's a couple of final things that i really loved about it which are both kind of small touches, but I adored. Uh, the first is that it's made of... The entire game is made of basically sustainable sourced stuff. So it's like wooden pieces, cardboard. It's all recyclable. It's all kind of 
there's no plastic or, or biodegradable yeah, yeah it's, that's it's awesome it's all made of stuff that is like is actually nature legit sorry my brain's not really working very well this morning otherwise i would have said a sentence that made more sense but <laughs> the, the second thing and this is a small thing but i adored it and i kept adoring it as the game went on is the fact that the the score tracker for this game that goes around the outside of the board is beautiful. It's just this amazing, <laughs> massive chain of flowers, just golden flowers with numbers on them. And in the kind of traditional thing of going, hey, look, it's, you know, it's a game where you get points as you go. So we're going to have the points go around the outside of the board. This is just like, this is what I want. It's You forget <laughs> that it's a scoreboard because it's just this lovely, gentle, gorgeous wreath around the outside of the the board that just just frames it rather than being a thing that's stuck on the edge and um it just yeah it's just a lovely little thing it's it was one of those games it was a great shame to be playing it digitally because you sort of think Mm. oh i'd love to have some wooden dominoes with animals printed on them in my (laughs) hand right now you know that reminds me of how like in early board games you know board games were just tracks with numbers on and then one of the first innovations on that was to add numbers and pictures and illustrations and color and theme to what is essentially a track with numbers on hey we've got all these board games now that have score tracks why not make a score track like if it's a game about getting rich why not have illustrations on the score track that show how rich you are at every step yeah yeah why not trademark shut up and sit down (laughs) (laughs) i don't think that's how ideas work I have been playing a little bit of a game called Pictures, which is designed by Christian Store and Daniela Store, and it was uh, recently won the Spiel of Jahres, which is the the biggest award in games ever, and every game that gets it is the best ever. I heard that it's... anyone who wins it gets a special trip to the board game factory where they make board games, and it's a top secret how they do it, and lots of people who go in there don't come back out alive i hear but they do appear in the art of board games for years to come yes <laughs> um and then you know what they they actually do um you can see the souls of trap board gamers in every single picture in pictures it's uh, a terrifying <laughs> That's a nice touch to board nice gamers touch. past you can see like vlada Hvartil just like frozen in carbonite uh, in the Swiss Alps. This is a game, right? This is a game that I just... I, I, I'll just explain it as someone who has seen it. This is the game that brought out in me the kind of old man shouting at clouds <laughs> within my brain of going, it's just a box with pictures and a bit of string in it. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that it is a good game, but it is a box of pictures with bits of string in it as well. Um it's a weird thing. Um, to explain what pictures is, um, it's a super, super simple teach. Uh, the way that you start the game is you lay out a grid uh, of pictures in a 4 by 4 layout with um, A, B, C, and D along uh, the top row and 1, 2, 3, 4 in a column so that they've all got like a grid reference. Um, and each round, everyone pulls a chit out of a bag, which gives them a coordinate. So I might have picture A3. Uh, so I have to then, uh, everyone then has to represent that picture with the medium they have in front of them. But those mediums are extremely limiting. So you might have to try uh, and, you know, show off a cabin in the woods, making it out of two shoelaces. Uh, or you might have to show like a bike, you know, get across the essence of a bike next to a telephone pole in the snow with a three by three grid of blocks that are colored. And like, that's the kind of limitations you've got shoelaces you've got these cards with symbols on them you've got that little three by three block grid you've just got some like 
basically like toy wooden blocks. And the weirdest one is just some sticks and some rocks that just come in their own plastic baggie, which made me laugh when I opened the box. Like, um, hang on. Well, like actual just like rocks. Like three sticks and then just rocks. But when you say How sticks, big are the sticks, when you say yeah, sticks, Matt, thank you. The sticks are about this big. That's and I'm not holding helpful. Up my... <laughs> We're recording a podcast, Tom. <laughs> like, imagine your standard HB pencil and <gasps> okay. cut it in half and make okay. it a little bit thicker. Wait, 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 wait. Cut it in half lengthwise. In snap it in like Tom, if you were how snapping many, it how many inches wait snap it which way snap it lengthwise well, how are you gonna it snap it lengthways i'm very strong so <laughs> roughly That's two inches pencil, three inches an uh, inch i can't it's about the size inches. of a regular <laughs> allen key okay <laughs> what's a regular i've got a set of allen keys here they come in at, like this one like this allen key okay yeah that is a pretty regular allen key matt yeah. it's a podcast you can't <laughs> No, yeah, but, you know, all right, if you have a set of Allen keys, it'll be the one in the middle, okay? Yeah. Oh, wow, finally we've arrived at a truly accessible comparison, <laughs> right? So but no, that wasn't even my question. I want to know, when you say a stick, right, do yeah. you mean a little wooden component shaped like a stick, or do you mean, like, a twig? Like, just yes, off the, I mean, a, a twig the, on the floor. the former, not the latter. They okay. didn't just pick up some actual sticks. Well, because you said there was a twig and some, some, a stick and some yeah. rocks. I imagine it being, like, just some detritus from a gutter. The twigs come in the <laughs> yeah, deluxe That is edition. what it sounds like. <laughs> okay, so I've, I've got my grid reference. I've got my twigs and stones. The size of an Allen key. The size of a medium-sized Allen, Allen key. key. And what happens next? Is the game over? Can we move on? <laughs> <Game's done. laughs> you appreciate the objects in front of you and move who on. Who wins? Who wins? The person who wins is the person with the most points. And the way you get points is you try and depict your little thing with your media. So you try and depict, you know, whatever your grid reference is, like A3 with some sticks and some rocks. And then everyone guesses which one everyone uh, was trying to represent and you get points if people guess you correctly and you get points if you guess other people correctly and then you move the each medium on to the next person so now now you have cards instead of sticks and then you do it for like five rounds and the game is over this sounds fine and i'm gonna tell you it's a little bit better than fine it's good but it's not amazing and we'll talk about why now uh, it, it got the thing that I really appreciated about uh, pictures is that for, for what it's worth, Spieliars gives awards to games that are kind of very approachable to a huge range of people. And yes. the fact that this game got my family from age 11 to 51 round a table and completely fully engaged in what was going on was honestly like a feat that very few games can accomplish. Um, it's, and I think that that's because it has a few little twists of magic. And one of them is that when you're making these terrible depictions of what these pictures are, it is incredibly funny. Because as soon as you make your rubbish, like, you know, two pieces of shoelace depiction of the Eiffel Tower, your entire group then comes around the table and will art gallery style go, hmm, ah, and kind of tilt their heads and look at things in a strange way until they can roughly approximate what one of the grid it might be it's like a terrible arts fair where you're kind of manning your own stall and everyone else has better work than you and then someone's coming around and looking at theirs and being like i know what that is and they look at yours and go what <laughs> like you, that's just two shoelaces and 
everyone's really laughing at everyone's just absolutely crap representations of these pictures and all like and there's there's always this lovely moment almost seemingly every single round where everyone will get what something is except for one person so everyone's going like <laughs> oh yeah that's really obvious what that one is and someone's going i don't get it and they're like tilting their heads at different angles trying to work out what this weird thing is um so that core of the game is really like magical it's super approachable and it caters to like a wide range of ages and a wide range of ways of thinking about the puzzle like i mean that sounds delightful uh, my immediate thought with this game not really knowing much about it was well you know does it even need all these different components could it not just be a deck of cards of pictures and then it'd be like hey everybody bring some let's find some stuff in your drawers and then just like make i was but actually i was thinking that but actually like the fact that you're like taking it in turns and passing around these different types of specific components mm. That kind of adds something for me. And I think that's interesting, especially having... I mean, you can still do it like that. Just like, I've got some drawing pins. I've got some <laughs> post-it notes. Um, yeah. But there is something there. So why doesn't it hang together? Well, it, do, it does hang together. It's good. But it's not re- enough. I can tell. <laughs> not enough for Mr. Brewster. It's what's weird, because I think what was super strange is that my family wanted to play it again, which again super unusual to have them ask to play a game more than once um and the reason i think i struggle with it is because i know that there's better out there if you can push to play something just a little bit more exciting and the thing that i was thinking the whole time uh that would just be which is this game system but just better is a game called paranormal detectives i was just about to say this <laughs> i i've been for the last five minutes i've been sat on a comparison which is you know that you know the dark crystal from the tv and movie the dark crystal where you put gelflings in front of it and then they just go Meh! and all of the life force drains out of them and they become old and gray sure pictures sounds to me like if you took a copy of Paranormal Detectives and put it in front of the Dark Crystal and it drained all of the colour, life, imagination and inventiveness until it was nothing but stock for stock photography and stones. Now, here's the thing. I, I know that's ridiculous. There's all kinds of reasons. Paranormal Detectives is not for everybody in yeah. a way that this absolutely is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I 100% see the comparison you were going for. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like for the, if uh, those don't know, Paranormal Detectives is an incredibly similar game where um, in, in its core, where one person is a ghost they have been murdered horribly and they have a little sheet that tells them how they've been murdered. Everyone else is a detective and they ask the ghost questions trying to work out how they were murdered um, or just killed in general, not specifically murdered. Uh, <laughs> I was definitely not murdered when I played yeah, that you game. You definitely were not. Um, and the ghost has to relay that the information uh, to the detectives using very strange media, like touching their back or putting some sliders in weird places or doing a three second mime. And that game just oozes like charm and has every single round is just hilarious and it's also a very kind of satisfying little puzzle and deduction game as well whereas Mm. pictures it's kind of very like it's good it's really good but i was sitting there thinking i would rather be playing this but ultimately maybe i just need to like kind of (laughs) swallow the impulse to want to play something better and just be kind of happy that i can get people around something that everyone is enjoying um, and really, that's that's what the Spiel des Award is for. Sure. Yeah. I think that this is actually an interesting problem of our times in the fact that usually you would just go, well, you know what? This is the game that my family really like to play. That's fine. I'll just play this with my family. But rather than playing games with my family being something you do maybe once, twice a year, it's now something you do a lot more because you currently live with your family and we can't just 
play board games and get our teeth into like war of the ring with friends at the drop of a hat <laughs> so i think that's the thing when it's when it's the group you have to play with most and mm. and you're stuck in the limbo of being like can we play that game and you're like yes <laughs> i mean i had the same thing with a lot of you know like i absolutely adore it but like my wife loves playing monikers and whenever we're mm. having some sort of party thing she'll want to play monikers and it's like that's fine but it comes a point where it's like i've played this game a yep. lot now i'd like to play something different but you kind of just have to accept like you know that that actually the reason that we do what we do and the reason why lots of people will listen to this podcast is because we enjoy voraciously discovering and trying new designs we like the thrill of of getting our teeth into something interesting and new and for yeah. some people they just want to play monopoly every christmas and i think if you can just or they just yeah they don't they don't want that hurdle of learning yeah. something they don't know if they'll understand they don't know if they'll like yeah. they don't know if it's for them yeah. whereas you know once they've found something good they can actually enjoy in a way that we obviously enjoy trying new stuff mm. you know yeah can you blame people for wanting to play pictures it's just yeah over and over it's, again it's a shift in mindset it's interesting like early in lockdown we tried playing a bunch of things online until we played some libertalia with my family on board game arena and it became this thing of my brother being like oh you know next time let's play this and me kind of kind of gauging that where my parents were at and being like well no maybe next time we could just play this again and they were like yeah yes yes because it's like in the mind of most people it's great when you can get them away from these classic board game designs that aren't very good but as soon as you introduce them to maybe just one game that's good they go this mm. is good we play this now <laughs> and when you go well look why don't we play something else they're like but why would we take the time and effort to learn this new thing when we already know that this is yeah. good? Which is, like, I would like to yeah. tease. Sorry, I would like. I would love to tease on the podcast something completely nuts. Uh, Tom, do you want to explain what's happened with your family and Capstone Games's? Um, <laughs> ooh, what's it called? Iron Rails. Uh, series. Ride, yeah, ride the rails. We 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 played uh, Irish Gage with my family, and they absolutely hated it and thought it was like the worst game ever, and never wanted to play anything again. Like never wanted to play a board game again. It was scorched earth after <laughs> Irish Gage. They hated That's it. That's understandable. Much. That's understandable. <laughs> That's hard. Matt felt halfway that way. I mean, no, I, mean I, you know, I'm I'm seasoned, so I, I I can I can sit there and appreciate that I'm just being absolutely done over by everyone, and that's fine <laughs> because it's the game. But if you're not, if you haven't been seasoned properly by the process, then God, yeah, it's just yeah. right, unreal. So check out the, the check out part two of this part story. Two is that then when I had them completely captive uh, and we <laughs> decided to play some of the second game in the series, Ride the Rails, my family played that and loved it so much that they now never want to play anything else again, which was the most bizarre like two-act structure. They love Ride the Rails okay, so, so much. And wait, 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 maybe wait, wait. one of the reasons <laughs> is that every single time we've played it, they have absolutely walloped me at it. Right. It's yeah, like... Because uh, okay. <laughs> I think, you know, to... I'll probably end up talking about Ride the Rails at some point because I think it's really great. But one of the things about that game is that it allows, almost without punishment, two people to team up and kind of just dunk on someone else and leave them a little bit in the dust. Even though if you team up with someone, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to win. But it's just put them like ahead of me every single game and they're just very satisfied beating me at something every so time. So to be, to be down with the kids, it's the equivalent of uh, going and taking all of the eggs from Yellow Team's basket. That's very down with the kids. That was a reference to popular video game Quake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, but I think I took this observation from you, Matt, that what Tom's describing is the key part of any family game is it needs a mechanic where someone can dunk on dad. But it turns yeah. out, now you play board games for a living, Tom, you are dad. I am dad. You have, yep. you have become the patriarch. You become dad, destroyer of worlds. Well, that's fun. I mean, oh, I just want to know how different is, you You can talk about it in more detail later, but how different is Ride the Rails 2? Is it like basically a really similar game? Or is there, are there things that are different that they might be like, oh, I like this more, or are they just loopy? The way that uh, I explained it the other day to Quinns was uh, in Irish Gage, say yellow, imagine yellow railway as a pie. And then when someone else decides to get in on yellow railway, they halve the pie with you and you each take half the pie. Uh, whereas in Ride the Rails, imagine yellow rail is a pie, and then someone gets in on yellow rail, they just make another pie. So now you've got a pie each. Um, so there's no, like, kind of, eb- like, scratching away at someone's profits. Like, you just profit together. Um, it's oh, okay. a very different game. I'd compare it more. It's basically like, you've played a load of Ticket to Ride with your family. Now let's make that full of steroids and play some Ride the Rails. And it's... I think it's really good, and it's more entry level than it looks. Um, well, it must be if you've, will... if you've managed to turn that hate train around. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I just wondered if it was a part of the phenomenon that we had with War of the Ring of playing a game and then hating it, and then and then it and then it fermenting in your brain until you eventually came around to a point of going, actually, I want another run at that. And then when you have another <laughs> run at that, going, yeah, this is great. Fermenting is such a good word for what happens in this hobby. Like, well, if a game's good enough, like when you play something like El Grande or Hands of Teutonica, like five years later, yeah. you will be like, you will still remember that game and be like, I want to play it again because it's been bubbling away somewhere in your mind forever. You know, there's a uh, apparently uh, I haven't looked into it, but someone was talking about it when we were streaming on Twitch last week. Someone in the chat was saying that there is an online portal through which you can play head to head ladder ranked war for the ring <laughs> oh, like, wow. and i'm like you know what i don't want to do that but i am quite up for playing so i might i might we might do a stream at some point where i we take a, an afternoon or not a weekend oh and just that's play a great idea because people love the twilight imperium stream so why not do war of the ring well i have to look at the interface on it and see <laughs> yes. just, it might be in excel yeah <laughs> Tom and I have been playing a medium-sized game this week called The Search for Planet X, which is published by Renegade and designed by Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rossett. And this game is good. Matt, do you know anything about it? No. Great. Uh, (laughs) Imagine an exam, but fun, um, is how I might describe it. So this is a logic deduction game. Um, Another game in that genre that's quite popular is Cryptid. If you played that last year, we played that and thought it was all right. I think I like The Search for Planet X more. This is part of Renegade Games' push to get us excited about space, along with another card game, which I think is very good and I'll be talking about in future, called Stella. So in The Search for Planet X, you all play competing telescopes. And I say that sort of semi-facetiously. Your player pawn in The Search for Planet X is a real-life enormous telescope, and your player's screen, behind which you'll be writing secret notes, has printed on it more details and a big art, you know, illustration of your telescope, including uh, what Tom, what you're playing the the VLT, which just stands for very, <laughs> very large, large telescope, telescope. with, yeah, with a very big diameter, which it does tell you about in the notes. <laughs> I my diameter was massive. I was a large <laughs> telescope based out of Arizona, which I cannot remember the name of. So what you're doing in this game is you are trying to figure out where Planet X is. Now that can be not 
that difficult if you play on the normal side of the board, but that's not what we did because we're gluttons for punishment. We flipped it over to the expert side, which is why the game took us maybe 45 minutes outside of the rules explanation, of which I would say about 30 minutes were us sat completely in silence trying to do logical deduction. <laughs> uh, so this is a uh, this is a something like a hidden role game, except no players are hidden, but what is in space is hidden. You know that in space there are going to be four asteroids, four, this is the expert side, Four dwarf planets, two gas clouds, four empty spaces, a couple of comets, and then planet X. So, And there are 18 sectors on the board. So you know one of those things is randomly going to be put into each of those sectors. So the game is actually played with an app helping you out. And the app contains all of the secrets for all players. So the app knows where everything is. And then playing the game is a little bit like um, the deduction mechanic in Alchemists, which is a phenomenal, fascinating worker placement game that all tries to see you figuring out what various medicinal herbs do while also running a business and, you know, publishing, <laughs> oh God, publishing your findings and all kinds of stuff. Quest for Planet X junks everything about that except for the deduction, which is great because, frankly, that's the best bit of Alchemists and I'm, I'm very happy to see it in a new form. So then what you actually do in the game is to find Planet X, which is going to give you a bunch of points, you have four things you can do on your turn. You can survey the sky and pick a range of sectors in what's called the visible sky because the Earth rotates. I don't know if you knew that, Matt. No, um, so you can be like... sure? Because uh, so, why would it need to rotate when it's flat? Okay, we're going to move on. So if you were to scan, you could on your turn scan sectors like three through seven and ask the app how many asteroids are in that space. Alternatively, you can twice during the game just target a sector and spend a ton of time units being like, just app, please, I'm sick of puzzling this out. Tell me what is in this sector. And the app will be like, it's a gas cloud or whatever. Um, but you're not going to find Planet X that way because Planet X appears like an empty space. So you have to figure out the rest of the sky to work out where uh, Planet X is through the process of elimination. Uh, other things you can do on your turn, you can do a research action, which will give you a, a cryptic hint. Like the app might say, oh, in this game, you know, comets are within a band of eight sectors. Both comets are within a band of eight sectors of space. Um, and then what else can you do on your turn? Oh, uh, also periodically throughout the game, you will be publishing research. So as you try and work out uh, through the various rules of the game, like asteroids always appear in a band of two, gas clouds are always next to empty space, um, comets can only appear on certain spaces, you're slowly, through like real sweat, in like inducing labor, figuring out, okay, this space definitely has an asteroid, which means asteroids can't be here, which means the comet must be there. I've, I feel like I've successfully described the game without describing anything about it that sounds fun. Tom, do you want to help me out here? It's, I think it's, maybe impossible to make this game sound fun because at its core it's essay writing a go-go in that you're just sitting there <laughs> like you're so right that about 30 minutes of the game was just us sat there complete silence head down working out where something was on a little piece of paper going <laughs> and that's the core of the game but it's wonderful like it's super it's such a satisfying puzzle because you slowly chunk through each of those entities you know you work out the asteroids and then once you've worked out where the asteroids are you can then work out where the gas clouds are and then when you work that out you can guess where the dwarf planets are but because you're both getting similar amounts of helpful information each turn it's narrowing down to this one point where who wins the game is determined by like a few time units like you found planet x the turn before i found planet x at the end like it mm. and it feels like super nail-biting as it gets there 
but maybe the most sort of like fun mechanic to talk about is uh the the pure joys of the immediate dissertation um oh yes (laughs) (laughs) so as time moves forward uh in the game you'll come across these spaces that have a little sheet of paper on them which means ding 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 it's time to hand in your dissertation and the first <laughs> which, one which by the way yeah oh sorry i was gonna say that yeah which happens almost <laughs> instantaneously it's like you got your job at the telescope you spent a day looking at the sky you made a sandwich and it's like so what have you found because <laughs> what was crazy about that is that you spent your first turn targeting a piece of space and i was like why is he using up targeting on his first turn i think like a stupid waste of your two target you know one of your two targeting actions what what a fool and i'm like scanning all this space and then right it's time to hand in your disc what's in that space I'm like, i've got no idea <laughs> and you're smugly <laughs> knowing exactly what's in that space because you saw it coming a mile off um, yes but where the mo- that actually led to a real realization as to where the game was quite interesting because i did publish on that turn but here's the thing especially when you play the expert game um you can actually publish zero one or two things on every sort of research publishing phase um and you are going to get points for locate, figuring out and publishing what something is. Like, there is a dwarf planet here. but you And you do get points for publishing that. You get more points for publishing that first. But you don't have to publish it immediately. And I realized I somewhat misplayed because, yes, I targeted that spect- sector of space. So I knew there was an asteroid in it or whatever. And I published that gleefully. But actually, you were never going to figure out there was an asteroid in that sector of space for a while so there is then a risk reward mechanic if you want to publish first but you want to be first at the last possible moment because obviously your published research is giving a ton of data to everybody else Mm. Mm. and there's a you on your little uh sheet that you have to make all your notes on there's space for you to write down exactly what you do on your turn so like survey sectors one two three one through nine for asteroids one found but you're also noting down what the other person is doing so gaining a little bit of a picture of where their research is leading you and when those dissertations Mm. get published it's like a flood of new information into the game but only sometimes because as we got later on we realized that we were figuring out exactly the same thing at the same time and there's that lovely moment where you have your fists clenched with how many dissertations you're going to publish in your hand and then you reveal them at the same time and we didn't even need to do that one round because we were like yep it's both of us are publishing this and they're going in exactly the same spaces and they reveal yep they're gas clouds we know (laughs) so um so you can see where the other players are um while they're looking but you don't find out the information until yes okay that's exactly right and you get so you know what they are entering into the app so you know they're scanning such and such a sector for gas clouds and incidentally the way that sector scanning thing works is if you do a really tight band like i'm scanning sectors two three four and i want to know how many gas clouds are there that takes way more time than doing a huge suite and Mm. which of course gives you less information um but yeah the the nice thing is that uh you know where someone's looking you know what they're looking for you don't know what they find but even when you do that research action in which you pick one of the game sort of seven tips to just get like an extra logic rule in the game you don't know what the other player finds out but you do know the sort of category of tips they looked at Mm. for example like if i look at at the start of the game the game tells you okay in this game you'll have randomly randomized tips a through f f is about gas clouds d is about asteroids and gas clouds e is about comets whatever so you even know what kind of hints your friends are getting. So I would assume, while we only played it with two, that in a three or four player game, if you know that immediately everyone starts looking at the sky or looking for asteroids, then probably you're going to be better off looking for research to do with dwarf planets or gas clouds because you have a higher chance of being first and finding out new stuff. Mm. Like, it is log- it's, it's one of those moments of board game alchemy where it is intensely solitary and yet still somehow shared because... Tom and I were talking about this after we played. The joy in 
you know, the search for Planet X and why I think it could be really divisive for people is how much do you enjoy sitting down and working something out, knowing the person sat clockwise from you is working out exactly the same thing, but with, from a slightly different mm. angle? Because for us, it was joyous. Yeah. But but it, it, there's no getting away from the fact that it did feel like an exam. Well, <laughs> it sounds like a very interesting mirror of, mirroring of the world of science, though. So... Like, just having scientists all over the world all working on very similar things in very similar places, and then somebody will make a breakthrough. But it's like... Well, also, nothing stops you from um, publishing stuff that might be wrong because there <laughs> is a penalty, but it's not massive, which is fascinating. <laughs> if you say, like, there's a dwarf planet here, and then there's always a, like, a, a delay of about 20 minutes before that dissertation is actually revealed to everybody. So people know you've published something on a space, but they don't know... <laughs> whether it's correct. So there was this lovely moment in our game where Tom published, I knew he published research on like Sector 8, and I was 90% sure it was Tom saying there's definitely an asteroid here. And if that was true, I could hinge all of my future deduction on that. But there was always a 10% chance that either Tom screwed up, at which point I'd never get confirmation, or he knew something I didn't, or I'd screwed up. So it was kind of lovely building a whole scaffolding of what I thought was in the sky and where Planet X supposed to be, based on an unpublished <laughs> dissertation from Tom, which may or may not say what I wanted to. There was a, a lovely moment there where that dissertation slid down on, and it, it got revealed, and it was like, and it's an asteroid. And, and then I went, oh, news to me. And you were like, you published it. <laughs> 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 oh, but this is what I was going to say: is that the penalty for being wrong is not big enough to you for you to discourage to discourage you from publishing. If I think there's like a fifty fifty chance yeah. you're right, yeah. So I think, especially in three or four player games, it could get really funky and funny with tons of people publishing stuff that's just prob only probably right. Yeah, combined which with, point, with the immediacy of having to do it like so quickly is like the imagery of just loads of bumbling scientists carrying papers being like sure why not there's an asteroid there like screw it <laughs> let's move on yeah uh, we should also say the presentation of this game is uh is really really nice really it's like yeah it's it's accessible and exciting despite using there's no people on the box or any of the mm. art assets it's exclusively pictures of either space or planet earth or like telescopes that's it <laughs> and yet they've they've made that feel dramatic and exciting yeah. and striking um it's a really really nice box a lovely size as well it's sort of you know it's it's not a standard size board game box it's a little slimmer mm -hmm. and yet it still feels kind of substantial it's like the same size but i don't know is it, it's my favorite size of box is it like <laughs> war of whispers size uh or like brass it's birmingham size thinner brass birmingham size Ooh. Oh, I did. Yeah, it's, that's that's the good size, right? It is a good size. Is wonderful, but I did feel like I was in like a Jinji Ito uh, piece, like slowly looking at that spiral of options in the middle of my spreadsheet, just going a little bit mad, like in something like Uzumaki. As I well, was slowly, I mean, but you you didn't even ask for an extra piece of paper. Yeah, which I did. You, I, you got I, a I, notebook. I, I asked myself. I did. I did. That... And at the end of the game, you got to look at it and realize that, <laughs> like, looking into my notebook after playing the Search of Planet X is, I think, a lot like getting a vision of what the inside of my head looks like this horrible <laughs> pen scratch and somehow it all comes together um i think i might just do a video review of this one um not necessarily because it's that good but because i've i relish the opportunity to publish a video review of something that is unlike anything else mm. on our channel mm, yeah it's, just, it's very very neat. just looking at the photographs of it it's, a, it's clearly a fascinating thing it looks really nerdy in a way that I get really excited about. It's like, <laughs> gas clouds! It's nerdy, but not gendered, which I think Renegade are so good at. Yeah. Like, yeah. They, they, it's like Renegade are lovely at publishing games that are for dorks, but not male dorks, yeah. which I think that the industry could really use more of. Yeah. <laughs>
Up on the website recently, we've had some videos you might want to go and check out. I went back and revisited Decrypto, a game that we gave a written review of a few years ago when it came out. But I found my love for blossoming and blooming as time went on. And I know Tom loved it as well and loved Laser Drive. Laser uh, the, the Drive. Laser Drive, the mini expansion. So, yeah, we went back and revisited it because I've played a bunch of it. And I do feel like it's just one of those perfect games. Yeah. It's absolutely gorgeous yeah. little thing like it's i think it's like it's untouchable right it's a classic like it's straight up a classic and it, it fits so perfectly into like the journey of like you've played code names and you can just step it up a little bit it's like on that little kind of like journey of going up through kind of tiers of similar games it just fits so well into like I feel like it will. Obviously, maybe it hasn't yet, but it will fit into like the canon almost <laughs> in a weird way. Yeah. And it looks so nice, which is lovely considering for all of Czech Games Edition's success with code names, they haven't felt the need to like, you know, make it really <laughs> nice looking, you know? Yeah. Uh, also uh, on the website and on our YouTube channel, I published a video review of Anomia. A bit like Matt with Decrypto, I just felt this was a classic that deserved some more coverage on Shut Up It's Down. Also, I was very tired after doing video reviews of Pandemic Legacy 3rd Edition and Go. Uh, so <laughs> I, uh, I put the brakes on and reviewed Anomia, which is little, light, and maybe certainly one of the funniest board games ever made. A lovely game that just tricks you into forgetting the names of words and then all your friends laugh. But then it's fine. But that just laugh that's, at them that sounds when... like why would I do that for fun? <laughs> when uh, I do yeah, that, I mean, in real life, all the time. <laughs> you know, Anomia could fall into the same category as Guy Splits, where it's one of those things that is specifically makes Matt very uncomfortable. And, uh, <laughs> God, I will never forget you playing Guy Splits with a hangover, and <laughs> just that, that is uh... one of those memories where in a dark room, if I close my eyes and imagine that, I can still make myself laugh. Yeah, I, that's the first time I played Double. Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and just finishing a game of Double with the world's worst hangover and someone showing me how to play and saying, it's easy, it just takes like a minute. And then we played around and they were like, okay, that's it. Do you want to play again? And me just being like, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you two, I'm actually working on another video review that I'm hoping will be on the site in the next month or so. I'm working on a video review of a big old game called Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy by uh, ooh, a name I'm definitely going to get wrong, uh, Toko Takakalio. Um, but this, the original Eclipse was a classic. It tried to kind of do what Twilight Imperium did, but with some kind of Euro game design, a lot of ergonomics involved to just get players having that space war experience, claiming planets and building ships and negotiating with one another, but then cramp it down so that it happened faster, easier, and simpler. And Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy is... Eclipse, again, but even faster, easier, simpler, prettier, and much more balanced as well. And I wanted to have a rehash of a conversation now that we had in our Slack channel where I offhandedly mentioned I might be getting rid of my copy of Twilight Imperium 4th Edition and putting Eclipse 2nd Edition in its place. How does that make you feel? I think it's outrageous. Bad. I think it's outrageous. And it confuses me deeply. Also, like, it's a game that we didn't ever look at. We walked past at conventions and I was like, oh, Quinn's, that's supposed to be good. And you're like, yeah, but it's really out of print. So there's no point covering it. I'm like, ah, fair enough. It's really out of print. We won't play that. We'll play it when it's back in print. And it feels like that was a thousand years ago. So now it, it, so now it is back. I'm excited to check it out. But at the same time, the idea of getting rid of Twilight Imperium uh, Four is just—it's just bonkers. And I mean, it's thankfully, okay. not allowed. Thankfully, I was like, <laughs> I was like, Quince is like, oh, I might send my copy to the Chuck's Library, and I'm like, 
I, you don't want it, I'll have it. Like, I want it. Because it, it kind of blows my mind that I don't have a copy of Twilight Imperium 4 after making that documentary about the history <laughs> of the game. I was like, oh yeah, I don't actually have it. And now it's, I think it's sold out. So... Uh, yes, I don't have it. Um, do check it. Speaking of which, do check out Matt's uh, masterful documentary on Twilight, the making of Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. I, because we set out to make that because there hadn't been a documentary exploring the process of just designing and manufacturing a game. Mm. That's still on YouTube. Still absolutely worth watching if you want to know a little bit more about the industry and see a lot of people be very funny about sexy turtles. I think about that that documentary a lot and I know that Andrew Navarro is up for having a chat at some point I'd like to try and do it as a thing on the podcast at some point of uh, talking about the kind of uh, the isn't Andrew Navarro not the head of FFG no no he's not Um, but that's the thing it's it was really interesting I think back to that period of filming it and the fact that when we started filming it FFG were across the road in the office that then became Asmodee North America and then when we came back to film some final pickups when the game was almost ready to be released, they all moved across the road into a place that had previously maybe been a storage area, but then was now the new office of FFG separating church from state of having the studio not in the same office as Asmodee, but it being this kind of strange building without windows. And, and I don't know, like, especially looking back at the past couple of years of seeing a really stark change in the fact that Asmodee, eating up all of the talent in the industry then being followed almost immediately by all of those talented studios suddenly now not putting out anything good Mm. i just i just think a lot about the cultural shift there and uh yeah i have some i have odd feelings about all of it but uh i mean it is very strange when we came into board games as an industry Everyone in it was exclusively in it because they love board games and no one was expecting to make money. And yeah, the history of Shut Up and Sit Down is also, it tracks with the history of money and all of its money tendrils reaching into board games and sometimes changing things, sometimes not. But yeah, I, I kind of feel like my, what I'm getting at, I guess, is I feel like my my love for TI 4th edition and my desire to own it is because it feels like, it feels like you're owning like the last days of the Roman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah that actually that does make sense and honestly that isn't that is a reason to keep toilet imperium so what eclipse second you're not the keeping it does? you've already said i can have it you can't <laughs> well i said I, did i say that did i say you might oh, have what? it i can't have talked <laughs> no. you out of it okay okay look listen so what what toilet imagine taking toilet imperium i'm probably gonna do some say some variant of this for the review and then removing all the stuff that lets you be a community remove all of the like politics remove all of the trade tokens remove all of the i don't know the action cards remove all of the color and flavor and then what you're left with is a deeply scandinavian dark core of just claiming planets and building ships and smashing those ships against each other in a way and that turns the economy of twilight imperium which is previously all weird and wobbly into just like a very simple cube allocation thing but the thing to know about Eclipse that's so amazing is how it, how the ships work, right? So, Matt, I'm going to blow your mind now. Mm-hmm. In Eclipse, everyone has three different categories of ships. Small ships, medium ships, big ships. And then those ships have little blueprints where you can slot tokens into the ship to show what they're equipped with. So, like, let's say your small ships might have, like, a power generator, an engine, and a gun. But then they have a fourth empty slot. What do you want to put in there? Do you want to put in another engine so they move twice as fast? Do you want to put in a second gun? Do you want to put in hull or a computer or shield? 
And then that, when you move to the bigger ships, which have like eight slots, they can be absolutely ridiculous. They could have, they could be incredibly slow and have nine hull or whatever. But the, the combat is not dissimilar to Twilight Imperium 4th edition, but there's this lovely organic thing in Eclipse where people are always trying to design one another's ships to beat everyone else's. And the simplest way to describe that is how missiles work. So missiles is something that you might, depending on the randomized setup, get the opportunity to research. And if you've researched some good missiles, you can strap missiles to your ship. Now, missiles happen first in combat before anything. But once missiles are fired, if any ships are alive, then you go into normal combat. So a very simple way to summarize why Eclipse is interesting is let's say your neighbor just starts churning out missile boats. That means that they're going to hit first in combat and hit unbelievably hard and probably wipe you out unless you survive. And if you do, then you're going to eat them. So it becomes this like marvelous arms race of players trying to engineer their ships to be, say, one neighbor. But of course, Eclipse, Eclipse is a game with a ton of different alien races and trying to keep an eye on what everyone's doing and trying to win those wars is just a delight. It's just really so simple and so much fun. Sounds cool. So, so <laughs> it is cool, Matthew. It is cool. And I, I I will save myself for my big old video review. I'm so excited to talk more of it. I'm very excited to big up game trays as oh, well, no. which despite you know, the Z on the net. I really can't wait to play this because it sounds awful. Wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> I To my ear, you basically just said, hey, take Twilight Imperium, remove everything that makes it fun and accessible and thematic and instead replace it with ships that go boom. Like, nah, I'm out. I'm one hundred percent. I think that is definitely a viewpoint that idiots can have. But <laughs> like, jokes aside, um, it's been really interesting to me hearing other board game podcasters talk about Twilight Imperium and not really getting it. And mm. that tends to track with board game podcasters who are more competitive and care more about winning. And if you care about like winning in the sort of tautness of the strategy, then Twilight Imperium Four is weird and bloated. Yeah. Obviously, we think it's thematic and colorful and lovely mm. and tells stories. But if you're not interested in those stories, if you're the kind of people who don't get why Inish would not go on forever because why would you ever allow your friend to be king, mm. then Eclipse is absolutely for you. I told you to I would talk about this for one minute. It's been like 400 <laughs> minutes. We should wrap this we podcast up. Should. Let's do that. Let's do that. Thank you so much for listening to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. You can subscribe to it on mm. iTunes or Spotify. You can do whatever you like. And I've got some exciting news for you in the land of Shut Up and Sit Down. We are now approximately only a month away probably exactly actually a month away from shucks online aka r shucks the away shucks which is going to be a weekend of panels previews nonsense on twitch we're going to have three days it's going to be running back to back almost all the time it's going to be too much you're going to be overwhelmed. You're not going to like it. So definitely put that in your diaries. <laughs> and more importantly, perhaps for people who are now going, well, I don't want to watch loads of live stuff on Twitch. I like listening to things in audio form at my own leisure. Then I've got some fun news for you. Regardless, I am just putting, putting the finishing touches on a bunch of T-shirt designs, which we're going to be selling alongside of that stuff. So we have had a lot of comments for a while of people being like, why can't I buy a shut up and sit down T-shirt? Ah, you will be able to do that in about a month from now. So if you're thinking, hey, that sounds cool, then why not make a little note in your diary? Mid-October, check it out. We're going to have some cool t-shirt designs that you can wear in your life. And I think that's it. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. I will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.